Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I read some love poems this past week. I did not do so to prepare for a romantic Valentine's Day dinner tomorrow night with my beloved wife of almost 40 years. My romantic Valentine's Day dinner will be with a bunch of guys who gather annually at the beach for the Super Bowl in a few days of golf. How do I love Millie? Well, if I counted the ways, somewhere on that list would be her allowing me to go on a golf trip on Valentine's Day. You know, maybe I should write a poem about that sometime and give it to her. I'm sure it would mean a lot. No, I read love poems this past week because I wanted to get out of the Apostle Paul's head and into the poet's heart in considering the cost of love, particularly the cost that comes from those who have loved and lost. Joseph Seaman Cotter speaks of never again seeing a lost loved one's winsome smile or hear her soft voice. Each stanza of his poem ends with a question asked of God. O thou who hearest from above, tell me, is this the price of love? For the speaker of a poem by Hindu poet Krishna Dasani, it is discovered that the cost is high indeed. Door is locked and the key is lost. Fate is cursed and life is frost. I chose to love and I am paying the price. Can't help, didn't know so high would be love's cost. And then there is what might be my favorite poem in all the world, Woodsworth, She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. He tells of Lucy who has died, barely noticed in the world, but who was the world to him. The poem ends, She lived unknown and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, And oh, the difference to me. I think the unspoken question of each poem was, was it worth it? That's a very personal question. And deep, heartfelt questions like that sometimes find head responses to be irritating. That's why I read love poems this past week. I needed to get out of Paul's head and into the poet's heart. I know that Paul's heart is in what he writes in Romans 5, but the way this passage has been heard by many in the church, well, for me anyway, it's beyond irritating. 
Let's listen to what Paul says and prepare for a shift here from poetry to prose, from heart to head. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. And not only that, But we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. I want to speak to grief one more time, even though my sermon is not about grief. As a minister, I have heard the question, Why, asked after the death of a loved one more than I can remember or count. And I learned early on that such a personal question is not usually well answered by an intellectual response, like the science of cancer, the consequences of poor diet, lack of exercise, or sustained smoking, the statistics of tornadoes, the fickle nature of chance, or the reminder that, you know, one day we all will die. Irritating responses. Now, what would happen if we were asking these two highly personal questions? Is there hope? And how can I be saved? The passage you just heard read from Romans so often has been interpreted in a way that provides two unsatisfactory and irritating head responses to these heartfelt questions. First question, is there hope? First answer provided by Paul's first paragraph. Follow these steps. Suffer. By suffering, you learn endurance. Endure. By endurance, you build character. Develop character, because people of character have hope. So, desperate one, do you want hope? Go suffer. But let's listen to Paul again. I know that he sounds heady. When one speaks theologically, one tends to sound heady. But theology, to be good theology, has to have heart. Let's listen again to Paul, and this time, let's listen for his heart. Is it possible that Paul is speaking to those who already know suffering? They yearn for hope, after all. Is it possible that he is speaking to those who are fighting discouragement, who sometimes wonder if they will make it, if it's going to be all right? 
Can you hear Paul encouraging those who suffer not to give up hope? Can you hear him remind the discouraged how blessings can come out of the struggle of hard times, how it is possible to be stronger for having struggled and endured? Maybe Paul's not offering a formula for hope here. Maybe he is lifting up hope for those who wonder if there is hope to lift up. Then we get to the next paragraph. The question that some have thought this second paragraph answers is this, how can I be saved? If you think that is the question, as many interpreters have said that it is, then it sounds again like Paul is offering a formula. God hates sin, and when he sees sin, he will destroy it in his wrath. You are a sinner and deserve to be damned. Jesus loves you enough to take God's wrath on himself. Then with the son's death, the father's wrath is satisfied and is no longer in the way of God's love. Now that's where Paul ends if you read it that way, but because this formula is entirely about what God does, interpreters can't help but add something else about what we ought to do. Confess your sins so as to activate what Paul just described, the saving power of what Jesus has done for us. So, do you want to be saved? Confess your sins so that they can be included in those sins whose punishment Jesus took upon himself. Now, for me, this is a classic head response to a heartfelt question. When the passage is read that way, when this passage is read in this head-first, formulaic, transactional way, you get it all wrong in trying to get it right. Yes, this passage is about the doctrine of atonement. That is, it's about our salvation. But this wrong reading of our passage is what has been called substitutionary atonement, that Jesus served as our substitute. And when it came time for the chickens to come home to roost, Jesus took God's wrath upon himself. By Jesus' death, we are saved. If, that is, we confess our sins and ask that the shadow of the cross fall over us. That head answer to a heartfelt question is, at least for me, irritating. And the main reason it is irritating is that it makes God to be some sort of abuser of God's Son. But let's listen again to Paul, and this time let's listen for his heart. Remember that Paul is speaking to the same readers for whom he just lifted up hope. He does not have in mind those grieving the loss of loved ones, but he has in mind those who are discouraged about the walk of faith. They've run into so much resistance. They have faced opposition, received scorn, and even suffered persecution sometimes because of what they believe. And he is assuring them that God's saving love is already theirs. Think of it this way. Paul is not describing how you get, but describing what we already have. He is not explaining how to access God's love and certainly not talking about how to get past God's wrath to gain God's love. He is simply describing God's love. And what is God's love according to Paul? 
What he says is in keeping with those poets that I quoted earlier who know what a risk it is to fully love another and what cost can come from having loved another fully. God's love is agape love, the full, vulnerable, selfless love of one who does not calculate the risks and accepts the cost. Don't we know that? I mean, if we don't, we should. We should know that loving another selflessly is to take a great risk. It is to open yourself to being hurt, being rejected, even being betrayed. And no wonder we put our guards up. No wonder we calculate the risk before letting others too closely in. But we should also know how great is the risk of those who refuse to accept or show love in that way, what they lose in being so defensive against it. Infants who are denied in their first years of life any sort of selfless love have a high chance of developing what psychologists call an attachment disorder. They grow up incapable of even understanding, much less receiving or showing the kind of love that puts the interest of another before one's own. And the worst sorts of psychosis, and especially the worst sorts of sociopathy and narcissism, are the conditions of people incapable of selfless thoughts or behavior, incapable of love that is not heavily transactional to their own benefit. It is a living death of sorts. Those who love in this world, get hurt. Those who love grow hearts that then hurt all the more when they are broken. Those who put the needs of others before their own out of either love of them or maybe out of love of God sometimes are taken advantage of. That's the sin of the world of which Paul speaks. But maybe Paul wants us to know that Jesus meant what he said, that to gain a life, you have to give it. To follow Jesus, one has to take up the cross of sacrifice. Maybe our best selves are resurrected from the cost, sacrifice, and death of having been loved and showing love. To truly love and be loved is to know the kind of life that one day that we might say was worth living, even with the cost. Jesus paid a price because he loved with God's kind of love. That's what Paul is telling us. Jesus didn't get in the way of God's wrath. He expressed God's very heart. Yes, there are things that inspire the wrath of those who love. I mean, we should be angered by what angers God. Children abused, the weak being taken advantage of, the hurting ignored, fears being stoked, lies told, someone as selfless and as gracious as Jesus being killed because he gets in the way of what selfish people want. But for some reason that God doesn't need to explain to us any more than we need to explain why we love so deeply a parent or a child or a friend that we would give everything for, God loves us. 
enough to be with us in Jesus, enough even to die without thought of revenge. That kind of love, Paul says, is transformative. It is saving. We are loved in that way, Paul is telling us, and we can love others in that way, he is telling us. And by such love, hearts are broken and remade. Lives are transformed and salvation comes. Take that into your head and heart when you calculate the cost of loving others as God and Jesus loves us. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.